Now look, this series is called God's Blueprint for a Healthy Church. And over the next 14 weeks, we're gonna work our way from front to back of Paul's first letter to Timothy. And as I was sort of preparing for this series, I got to thinking about blueprints. And to me, blueprints tell you an interesting story. Think about the architect in his office, carefully planning for hour after hour, week after week, trying to understand all the forces of stacked stone and poured concrete, trying to make sure the building that's built is both aesthetically pleasing to the eye and sure to stand longer than the paper on which the plans are drawn. Now think about our blueprints for our church. They were drawn up in 1939 by an architect in Austin named Austin, uh, Arthur Fair. And he worked really hard to lay out every meticulous detail on every square inch of our church's main building. He's got in there the grade of the slope in our sanctuary, the depth of the piers that are underneath the sanctuary, how far apart the windows in the sanctuary need to be. I mean, everything meticulously laid out. And when you add to that careful planning, the backbreaking work of the men who came after work to build that place by hand, you see what an intense blessing, what an awesome story those blueprints show. Not just careful planning, but God's faithfulness to our church. But then I think about another set of blueprints, the plans that Jesus must have for CBC and for every church like us. I mean, think about what he told Peter in Matthew chapter 16. You're Peter, you're the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Now, if we human beings go through the process of carefully laying out our building project, don't you think that Jesus has some kind of perfect plan for our church? Don't you think he knows what he wants our church to be about? Now, I'm, I'll admit it, I'm a pastor, okay? I'm not an architect and I'm not a builder, I'm not handy in any way. So I would not presume to know what the master builder, Jesus himself, has in store on the meticulous detail level for our church. But I do think 1 Timothy gives us a glimpse. My argument over the next 14 weeks is that in 1 Timothy, God lays out for us the blueprint of a healthy church. He tells us the kind of lifestyle he expects from us as the men and women of a church, what kind of leadership structure we need. And this morning, he talks to us about our foundation. What are we building on as a church? What I want you to see this morning as we work our way through this passage is that according to God's blueprint, if we want to be a healthy church, we better build on the foundation of sound doctrine. Now, as we see in these first few verses, we have our standard introduction to the letters of the New Testament. We find out that Paul wrote the letter. We found out that he wrote it to Timothy and that Timothy was stationed in Ephesus, continuing the work that the apostle Paul had started there. Ephesus was an ancient cosmopolitan place. People came from all over the Roman world to trade goods, and to worship in the magnificent temple built to Artemis of the Ephesians. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And underneath the shadow of that wonderful monument, Jesus was building a church. The Apostle Paul had started the church in the early 60s on his third missionary tour of the Mediterranean, and he'd spent two years there 
preaching the gospel, establishing a church, and using Ephesus as a missions hub to the rest of Asia Minor. After he was in prison and on his way to Rome, he sat down in a jail cell and wrote the Ephesians a letter. It's called Ephesians, and it's there in your Bible a few pages to your left of 1 Timothy. After Paul sat in a Roman prison for three years, he was released, and at some point after that, he made his way back to Ephesus where he tried to fix some of the problems that had arisen in his absence. For instance, we see in verse 20 of 1, Peter, or 1 Timothy 1 that Paul had confronted two men, a guy named Alexander and a guy named Hymenaeus, who were apparently ringleaders of a group within the church that had departed from the message Paul had preached, start preaching what he calls false doctrine. The Greek word is the word we get heresy or heterodoxy from. They had left what Paul had given them and adopted something else. And so we pick up the story with Paul on mission in Macedonia and Timothy left behind with clear marching orders. Instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. See, Paul knew that a church that wasn't built on the foundation of sound doctrine had absolutely no future. Like a man building his house on the sand, that church would crumble. And he gives us three reasons why that is in this passage. The first one comes to us in verses three and four, where Paul tells us that a healthy church must be built on the foundation of sound doctrine because sound doctrine explains the plan of God. Sound doctrine explains the plan of God. Now you saw it there in 1 Timothy 3, commands certain people not to teach false doctrine. And I wish Paul had given us a bullet-pointed list of all these heresies that Alexander, Hymenaeus, and their friends were spreading in the church. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, we're left to sort of understand what he says about Timothy's opponent throughout the letter to try to fill in the gaps of our understanding. He says in verse 4 that this false teaching has to do with endless myths and genealogies. In verses 7 11, Paul says that these teachers had made significant errors in their understanding of the law. Later in chapter 4, he's going to say these men have left the gospel and have gone after deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons by forbidding marriage and demanding abstinence from certain foods. In 1 Timothy 6, he says that these men have assumed that godliness or the appearance of godliness is a means by which one could financially enrich themselves. That's a false teaching that had taken root in the church in Ephesus. And Paul knew that if Timothy didn't do something about it, the church had no future. You take all these little elements sprinkled throughout the letter and put them together. What you start to see is how at home these men must have been in the religious environment, first century Ephesus. Whether it was within the Judaism in the city, where rabbis were highly respected and people would move out of their way when they were walking down the street, or whether they were taking their cues from the philosophers who were standing on every street corner in Ephesus, espousing the philosophies of their day. When these men within the church started seeing their doctrine as a way of enriching themselves and gaining for themselves prestige and honor, they went after these endless myths and genealogies. What they were doing was taking the Old Testament stories, stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and filling in gaps that were left by 
the narratives of the Bible. They were using them as the jumping off place for all kind of imaginative speculation, all kind of fanciful stories, kind of stories that you and I sometimes think about or the kind of conversations we get into in our Sunday school class. Let me just do a quick poll. Have any of you ever heard the question, how many angels can fit on the head of a pen? What about this one? Can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? Now, I've been in conversations about questions like that, and they're fun. They allow us to stretch our biblical imagination, to use the critical thinking skills that God created us to have, and they're fun to just sort of kick around these different ideas. But at the end of the day, whether we're talking about angels on needles, or whether we're talking about the ancient stories of Jewish patriarchs, Paul says they're empty chatter. They're spiritually meaningless. They don't amount to anything of value. Instead, they're actually distractions from what's most important. These men are going on about myths and endless genealogies, but here we are trying to preach about God's plan, which operates by faith. You see that there in verse 4? God's plan that operates by faith. God's plan, maybe your Bible says, the administration of God. This is one of Paul's favorite phrases to describe the big picture of what God is doing in the world through Jesus. He uses it in Ephesians 1 and in Ephesians 3. And listen to what he says, Ephesians 3, 8. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So while the false teachers in Ephesus saw the Old Testament as the raw material for all kind of esoteric and imaginative speculation, Paul knew that it contained a hidden mystery. It contained God's plan to redeem the world and to save a people for his own possession through the death of his son, Jesus. I mean, just think about what the Old Testament really teaches us. Number one, the very first page. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is our creator who spoke everything into being from nothing. And as his crowning act of creation, he made you and me, mankind, and he prepared a perfect place on earth for people to live where every need they had was met in him. But almost immediately after he placed the first people in the Garden of Eden, they rebelled against God, rejected his command. And the Bible calls that rejection sin. Because of their sin, every person who descends from them inherits a sinful nature. And as soon as we can, we add to their sin with sins of our own. But third, the Bible also teaches us that as soon as the people sinned, God came in with grace. And though they knew that they were naked, God took animal skins and he made clothes for them. And though he sent them away from his presence, he blessed them with a new son named Seth. And from Seth's family came the people who worshiped God. But it continued because God called a man named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and said, go to the place I'm gonna show you and I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna make your name great and I'm gonna give you more descendants than there are stars in the sky. And so Isaac comes along and then Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons, the great patriarchs that these false teachers love so much. 
And 400 years later, all their descendants ended up as slaves in Egypt. But God visited them, being faithful to the covenant he made to Abraham, and sent Moses and redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, and led them through the wilderness, and planted them in a land flowing with milk and honey. And he gave them a good king named David who reigned over them, a man who was after God's own heart. And David's son Solomon built a magnificent temple where people knew that if they showed up there ready to pray like Isaiah, they could encounter God. His ears were open to their prayers, and he saw their need. And though God's people were rebellious, God remained faithful to the promises he made. And through century after century, he continued being faithful to his covenant. And the, promise, the prophets promised that someday all this faithfulness was going to come to a great climactic conclusion when God himself was going to come and suffer for his people's sins and remake the world so that his glory covered the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's the Old Testament. False teachers use those stories as fanciful, raw material for false teaching. But Paul knew the Old Testament anticipated Jesus. Jesus himself said it. He told the Jewish religious scholars in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think they contain eternal life, but they testify to me. Luke said in Luke 24 that Jesus spent time with his disciples explaining all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. And the false teachers had gone so deep on the individual stories of the Old Testament, they had lost the big picture of what it was really all about. They had lost sight of God's plan. Now, I know that the doctrinal innovations that we're likely to face as a church family are probably not going to find their source in stories of the ancient patriarchs. But the doctrinal innovations of our day have the same root problem as the doctrinal innovations in Ephesus, that we're tempted to fill up our time with empty chatter rather than focusing on the things that matter most. Maybe it happens in a Sunday school class or connect group where you start out good, but somehow things take a turn for the worse and there ends up this crazy debate about some secondary or third level doctrinal issue like the end times or something. Or maybe it's more bizarre, like one commentator this week I read said, these conversations are like us getting around and talking about what would happen if aliens turned out to be real or zombies actually existed. Like, like the Bible says anything with clarity about all of that, but we're going to spend our time talking about it. What I want you to know is healthy churches reject that kind of empty talk. Let's see, hey, we have, our time is short. We got more important things to spend our time thinking about. Healthy churches are wary of the theological systems that promote the endless asking of questions, but are never able to arrive at truth. Healthy churches reject Bible teachers who undermine the clarity of scripture by just offering up, hey, just asking questions. That's a healthy church. A healthy church focused on what matters most. And if we want to be a healthy church, we got to keep the main thing, the main thing. Focus on the sound doctrine, which helps us to understand God's plan. But number two, Paul says the sound doctrine is that foundation of a healthy church because it produces love. Look at what he says in verses five and six. Now the goal of our instruction is love. It comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. Before, Paul called it empty chatter. Now he says it's discussion that bears no fruit. 
And in contrast to all that false doctrine, here we have our charge. The gospel message as entrusted to us, what he calls in verse 10, sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. And he's pretty clear. Sound doctrine has one goal, and it's love. It comes from three different places. He says, first of all, that sound doctrine comes from love and a pure heart. A pure heart. Now, from the Bible's perspective, the heart is the part of a person that's the real them. It's the place where their motivations and their desires and their feelings reside. You know, you were created to have a heart that loved God. You know that, right? Isn't Jesus asked in the Gospels, what's the greatest commandment? And he answers, the greatest commandment is this, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You were made to love God. The problem is, because we descend from sinful human beings and have within us a sinful human nature, that our hearts end up wanting and feeling things that are contrary to God's desire for us. The Bible calls this an evil, unbelieving heart. It says the heart is deceptively wicked above all things. Our hearts feel and want things that are not good for us. And what's worse is a heart like that keeps us alienated from God. That's why the psalmist says in Psalms 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only the one with clean hands and a pure heart. But then you get the gospel. Sound doctrine, which tells us that God takes our unfeeling, dead heart of stone and replaces it with a law of flesh. And he writes his law on our hearts so that what we want more than anything is to obey him. We find that God has sprinkled our hearts clean in Hebrews 10, 22. And when we confess our sin, he continues his process of cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And as a result, we're able to love God. But it's not just a pure heart. Paul also says it comes from a good conscience. And if the heart is the source of your feelings, the conscience is the part of you that tells you whether what you did was right or wrong. You were made to live in a way that pleases God. And he created you with a sense of morality. We were just talking about this with our kids. That we don't want our children to do what's right because we said so. We want them to know in their knowers that what they're doing is wrong. We want them to have a feeling that, oh, I shouldn't do that, that's bad. And that is the conscience. And the problem, whether you're an eight or nine-year-old or an 89-year-old, is that consciences become seared. That's what the Bible calls it. They don't feel the difference between right and wrong. People make peace with their sin and live sinfully for so long that they can't tell up from down or right from wrong. And so then sound doctrine comes in and it reorients us to God's standards so that we're able to assess our behavior honestly and humbly and as an act of love, no longer do whatever feels right or makes us feel good, but to do what pleases God, that which is true, beautiful, and right. But it's not just a pure heart and a good conscience. Paul says the love that we're after is love that comes from a sincere faith. And I think this is really key. If you could just go home and meditate on sincere faith. What makes faith sincere? The false teachers are promoting this doctrine that magnifies and multiplies speculation. It leads to open questions. But the sound doctrine Paul's talking about, the sound doctrine that he preached and that he's challenging Timothy to preach, leads to a settled faith. This faith is not a blind leap 
out into the unknown. Like I'm just gonna do it and I hope he's out there. It's not what one commentator calls a self-deluding sham. Like you're crossing your fingers because you don't really believe, but you want to believe, and so you're just going to go along with it. It's not arbitrary religious commitment, like I'm a person of faith. No, what Paul is talking about when he's talking about a sincere faith is a relationship of deep trust in God that's defined by love, an unbreakable bond of trust. I love the way the Apostle John talks about it in 1 John 4. He says, we have come to know We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Listen, I know people sort of shy away from doctrine. I mean, it's a dry and stuffy concept for so many people. Who wants to sit around and talk about theology every day? The truth of it is, if you wanna have a healthy church, Paul says sound doctrine is the most practical thing that you can pursue. I mean, we know that love really is the best test of a healthy church. Like when you walk into a church building, you can tell if the people there love each other. And I'm not talking about just saying, like, I love you. But we ought to love, John says, not just in word only, but also in deed. Do these people put the interests of others before themselves? Do they sacrifice for the good of the people around? Do they love each other? I mean, everything we look for in a healthy church is defined by that attitude of love. But it's not just that. Do these people love God? Like, is God the focus of this place? Or are we just getting together to do church? Whatever that means. If God's not the focus of a church, doesn't matter how many people are there, it's unhealthy. And Paul says that kind of love comes from sound doctrine. It comes by thinking deeply about who God is and what God does. And the opposite is true. Where false teaching is present, there's constant strife and discord and fruitless discussion and empty speculation. But sound doctrine has a way of getting everybody together and uniting them in one common love. We love God and people. Because of that, it's a shame that so many churches are anemic. They're grasping for life. It's a shame that so many Christians' lives are devoid of love. I mean, there are Bibles on every nightstand and on every phone. YouTube is full of sound Bible teaching that you can listen in your car to the world's greatest preachers every day. That you can go to Walmart or Hobby Lobby or CVS and find a little book that's gonna encourage you in your faith. And yet there is such an absence of love. And it's a shame. And so sound doctrine must be the foundation of a healthy church because it produces love. And then finally, Paul comes to the third reason the sound doctrine's got to be the foundation of a healthy church. He says it's because it magnifies the glory of God. Sound doctrine magnifies the glory of God. On the other hand, false doctrine magnifies the supposed glory of man. Sound doctrine magnifies God. False doctrine magnifies man. We see this here in verse 7. Listen to what Paul says about these guys. I wish I was half as bold as Paul. They want to be teachers of the law, 
although they don't understand what they're saying or what they are insisting on. Now, this is about as close as you get to mudslinging in the Bible. But I want you to think about these guys in the Ephesian church who their number one goal in life is to be a teacher of the law. That's like a title. They want the name tag. They want the desk plate, Brad, teacher of the law. Apparently they had figured out that to be regarded as a teacher of the law meant that you also had certain privileges. You were respected. You had prestige and honor from the people in your church. Maybe they were like the rabbis in Jerusalem or the philosophers in the Roman world. The only problem from Paul's perspective is that they suffered from this double error, this terrible mix. They were incompetent and wrong. So they didn't know what they were talking about and everything that came out of their mouth was absolutely out of line with what was reality. You ever know people like that? They're talking all the time, but nothing they say makes sense or is true. But Paul is the perfect person to address their desire. He was everything they wanted to be. I mean, the apostle Paul, from the time he was a kid, was raised up at the feet of one of the best teachers of the law in all of Jerusalem, a guy named Gamaliel. Paul was incredibly learned in the stories of the Old Testament. He knew all the details about Abraham and about Isaac and about Jacob, and his letters are full of evidence of that. But Paul went beyond the stories, to the deep substructures that held them together. Therefore, Paul knew that the problem with the false teaching in Ephesus wasn't simply that they were using the Old Testament, since that's something he does in nearly every letter he wrote, but that they used it incorrectly. They were using it incorrectly. He says in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately. Listen to what he says in verse 9. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. Listen, the problem with the false teachers wasn't that they were using the law, it was that they were using the law incorrectly. And in this, these few verses, Paul lays out what we believe about the law. And so you're ready for this? It's not in your notes for you to fill in, but I think it really is important. All right, two things that define the Christian view of the Old Testament law. Number one, the law's not meant for a righteous person. Instead, it's given to expose sin. The law is given to expose sin sin. That list of sins that I've now read for you twice seems like kind of a laundry list of the most wicked sins you can imagine, right? Like killing your mother and father is pretty bad. Being a kidnapper, a man stealer, that's pretty rough. And I would hope that we don't have any of you here today who are guilty of those sins, right? Um, but what the law is given by God to do is to expose sin, and though it seems like a laundry list of things, Paul's actually running through the order of the Ten Commandments. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The second, you shall not make for yourself any graven image. The third, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The fourth, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Fifth, honor your father and mother. 
You can discern the same basic structure as Paul goes through this list, that there are two elements to the law of God. Number one tells us how we ought to live before God, how we ought to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second part of the law tells us how we ought to live with each other in human society, that we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. We shouldn't covet our neighbor's wife or steal their livestock or lie about them in court. We should love them, do unto them as we would have them do unto us. The problem is that that's not the way the false teachers were using the law. It seems like the false teachers were using it as a checklist or a measuring stick to prove their righteousness to God and people. They were proud to say, well, I have never killed my mother. They were proud to say, I'd never lie about you or perjure myself in court, thinking that if they could tell everyone all the good things they had done and all the bad things they had avoided, they could prove to the world and maybe to God himself how righteous they were. But Paul says the law wasn't given for righteous people. The law instead was given for sinners. And that's why the false teachers had gone astray. Paul, throughout his letter, says it's actually the opposite of the way the false teachers had approached it. That though our private struggles with sin may not be in this list, you may not, for example, be a mother or father murderer. And yet, Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. James says in James 2 that whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Paul says in Romans 3 that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. The false teachers wanted to use the law as a way to justify themselves, to demonstrate their righteousness, but they failed to see how God had given his law to expose them as irredeemably broken people. They had nothing good within them, nothing in their hands to bring, simply to the cross they ought to have claimed. And it was missed on them. No clue. Paul says, Timothy, you've got to get the church back on track. The law is not a means for earning salvation. Instead, it breaks down every vestige of pride hidden in the human heart and shows us that we are liable to judgment and in desperate need of a savior. The law is not good news. The law is bad news for every last one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our life and none of us will stand there uncondemned. The law has rendered us all guilty before God. So how can Paul say that the law is good? The law is good to the extent that it shows us our need for a savior and hurries us on to find him. So that's the second truth about the law, the Christian view of the law, that if sound doctrine teaches us that the law condemns it, it also shows us that Christ has redeemed us. This is the gospel, the good news. But though every person in this room will stand before a just and holy God condemned, that he sent his son to be born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that in him we might receive adoption as sons. That Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, upholding every command that you and I have broken, doing everything that God required, never turning to the right or to the left. And at the end of it all, he offered himself up as a sacrifice 
for sins, to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on the tree. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Look, the false teachers wanted to magnify the glory of man by using the law as a checklist, a badge of honor and pride that I'm not like these other people. And Paul says, no, the law reminds us again and again of our desperate need for Jesus. The healthy churches know this. Healthy churches know their insufficiency. Healthy churches know how broken they are, how if any good thing happens within them, it's not because of them. It's all because of God. Rather than preaching about how good they are, they consistently turn their gaze and the gaze of other people around them to Jesus who came for them so that he gets the praise and the glory that he deserves. Church family, if we would be a healthy church, we have to be built on the foundation of sound doctrine. There's no other foundation on which to build. We've gotta come back again and again to the truth of the gospel and allow it to shape everything we do. We've gotta dwell deeply on it so that we would discover our place in God's plan for the world. He didn't save you and put you in a church so you could enjoy the blessings of heaven and life with God. He saved you so that he would do that and share it with others that they would come to see the light of Christ in us and through us. We've got to drink deeply from it so that the love that God produces within us can spill over for the good of the people around us. We've got to proclaim it from the rooftop so that God would receive the glory he's due. So I want to challenge you. Over the next 14 weeks, let's recommit ourselves to building a church not by our might or in our power, but according to God's blueprint and watch him build something that outlasts and outshines any of us. Will you pray with me?